Oh, hey guys, good evening. Merry Christmas. Good to have you guys here. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for sharing your Christmas weekend here with us. It's a privilege and an honor for us that you guys are here, uh, especially if you're a guest with us tonight. Just a special welcome to you. I know it can be kind of hard to go to a place that maybe you're not familiar with and um, just know that you're loved and we're really glad that you're here tonight. Uh, I love Christmas. I love being able to kind of do all the stuff that you get to do at Christmas and the, the lights and the decorations and, you know, the Christmas blend coffees and all of that. So I don't know what makes a coffee a Christmas blend, but I like it. I love it, actually. Um, and yet Christmas could be, um, as wonderful as it is, it could be crazy, right? Like there's so many things going on and there's stresses and there's parties and, you know, I got to get the perfect gift and, and all of that. And um, if we're not careful, we can make Christmas about all the other stuff. You know, we can make it about getting Christmas gifts and decorating things just perfectly and the perfect meal. And, you know, sometimes Christmas is, um, is challenging. Sometimes, you know, the relationships that we have with family members when we gather together can be stressful. Sometimes maybe for some of you, this is the first Christmas without somebody that you love. And, um, and so I want to challenge you tonight. Um, we got about, I got about 20 minutes with you. I got about 20, 25 minutes with you. And my goal in this time is really just to kind of focus us on why we're here, on what Christmas is really all about. And that, of course, is Jesus. Uh, we just finished a series that we've been doing most of the fall on the Old Testament. We called it Understanding the Old Testament. And if you're not real familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament is kind of the first chunk of our Bible, right? The New Testament's the second part. And the Old Testament tells the story of really from the very beginning, from the creation of everything up until about 400, 430 BC, somewhere around in there. And it tells the story through God's special relationship with, with a particular group of people, the, the Jews or the Israelites, right? And so um, everything in the Old Testament is before Jesus, right? And so the end of the Old Testament ended, like I said, about 400, 430 BC. And then Jesus is born, of course we celebrate at Christmas, right around 2 to 4 AD, somewhere around in there, right? Right around the time when we changed from BC to AD, right? And that's interesting because what that means is there were about 400, 430, we said in the video, years of silence, right? From the time the Old Testament ended, the last book in the Old Testament that was written, until the time that you know, God became flesh, until Mary, who was a virgin, became, you know, uh, uh, God did something, and she was pregnant, and she gave birth to this little boy. From the end of the Old Testament to there was 400-ish years of silence. And it's interesting because um, God actually said it was coming. There's a passage in Amos. I just thought this was, these kinds of things help me in my faith. They help me believe. Like God says something's going to happen and then it happens, right? So this is Amos 8. He says, God says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find any. God will be silent, right? And that's a different sort of experience than what we think of in the time leading up to Christmas, right? For us, the days leading up to Christmas are crazy. There's all kinds of stuff going on, right? But that very first Christmas, the days and years leading up to it were very different. There was a silence. And for us, a lot of times when we think of silence, we think of stillness, right? Like 
inactivity, things like that. And yet, God's, in God's silence, he wasn't still, right? He was working. He was doing things beyond our recognition, beyond our perception. He had this plan that he was working on that he put in place hundreds and even thousands of years earlier, and it's a plan to redeem. It's a plan to reconcile. It was a plan to fix that which had been broken over and over and over again by us, by humanity. And so in this Old Testament series that we did, we kind of look at the Old Testament tells kind of the beginning of the plan, right? Kind of the first parts of the plan as it was fleshing out, as it was happening. And what's so interesting about the Old Testament is not only did it tell, did it describe parts of God's plan as they were happening, but in the Old Testament, God said things that were going to happen one day through this coming savior that he was gonna send, right? And so in the series we were looked at, we looked at some of the covenants that God made. So God made these promises, essentially, to the people that things were going to happen, or he was going to do things. And some of these covenants, actually most of these covenants, would not be fulfilled until Jesus came. So for example, uh, God made a covenant with a guy named Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And God said to Abraham, he said, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. One day, Abraham, through your offspring, through one of your offspring, the entire world, the entire creation is going to be blessed. He's, another time he was talking to King David. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he made a promise to David. He said, listen, a day is coming when someone from your family line will sit on the kingly throne and he will rule with perfection. He will rule with righteousness, with, with justice, with sinlessness forever, right? And we hear that and we go, what? What was God talking about? I mean, imagine if you were there at the time, like, what do you, how could that happen? How could someone rule forever, right? Another week we looked at the prophets and, we, and so many of these different prophecies that were written hundreds of years before Jesus came talked about what this Messiah would be like in incredible detail, like with specifics that are like unfathomable. Let me, let me read you a couple. Let me, I'll just read you two from the book of Isaiah. So, so this was written about 700 years before Jesus came, about 700 years before that first Christmas. Ready? This is Isaiah 7. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Like just think about that. Like think about how almost ridiculous that sounds. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call that son Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. They will call that little boy God with us. And a little bit later in chapter 9, he kind of expounds on what this son, what this little boy will be like. He says, for to us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, this little boy will be called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. His, he will reign on David's throne. There's that, that covenant that I was talking about. David's throne and over his kingdom and establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. Like I would imagine if I was living 700 years before Jesus and I heard this prophecy, I would have thought, it kind of sounds like God is saying he's going to come himself. You know, it kind of sounds like God is saying that he's going to take, he's going to be born of a virgin and he's going to do this. And see, 
That was his plan, right? Like all along, that was his plan. God took on flesh and blood, and he became this little boy who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the one, Jesus is the one who would be the offspring of Abraham, who would bless the world. He's the one who would sit on David's throne and he would rule with justice and righteousness and perfection forever and ever. Like finally, after 430 years of silence, God spoke and God moved and God came. And, and maybe, you know, I've been saying this all weekend, maybe you hear that and you go, I know that. Like I've heard that maybe hundreds of times, you know, like I've gone to church Christmas time since I was a little kid. I've heard the story, what Grace read, Luke chapter, I saw, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas. I know Luke chapter two. I know the, you know, the story of Jesus being born. And, and maybe we hear it because it's so familiar to us. We almost overlook it, you know, and, and, and maybe even worse, it has the potential to be just kind of normal for us, right? So I thought a lot about this this week as I was preparing for this. I thought, what do I want to do, do for 20-ish minutes, 25 minutes with you guys? And here's what I want to do. I really just want to focus us, wherever you're at tonight, if, if you're somebody who grew up in church and you know, you've thought about Jesus being born for, you know, for years and years, or maybe tonight you're here and you're, very, you're much less familiar with it, wherever you're at tonight, I would love for us to try to think about this with fresh ears tonight with a fresh mind, with a fresh heart, to think about what an amazing thing it is that the God of the universe, the, the Colossians calls Jesus, God the Son, the creator of all things, that the creator of all things left the glory of heaven to take on all the limitations of this, of a human body, right? And experience the absolute worst of humanity. He left, like think about what he left to become a human being like you and me and experience betrayal, belittlement, torture, murder, just so that he could take the punishment that we deserve so that you and I could have peace, so that you and I could, have, could experience love and purpose and salvation. Like, that's crazy in the best possible way. That is, that is so crazy. So I want to tell you a few stories tonight. Here's the first one. In um, the 16th century, so this, this goes way back, early 1500s, um, lots of stuff was happening in the world. So, so we had just come out of the dark, we, like I was there, I'm not that old. We had just come out of the dark ages, right? Like, which tells you a little bit what life must have been like. And the Renaissance was happening in the world, you know, all this kind of thinking and art and all that sort of stuff. In the religious world, there was a lot of stuff going on as well. It was a time period of the Reformation was happening, right? So uh, maybe Luther, you know, hitting the 95 theses. Theses? Theses on the wall? Um, so lots of stuff going on, and one of the guys that was leading this Reformation uh, was a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. So Zwingli lived uh, late 1400s, early 1500s. And so Zwingli was the pastor, he was the pastor priest of a church in Zurich, Switzerland, okay? That's where he lived, that's where he ministered. And so one time in 1519, um, Zwingli was out of town. He, he actually was not there in his hometown in Zurich. And while he was gone, something terrible happened in Zurich. The Black Death hit Zurich. You know what the Black Death is? You remember to learn about this in school? The Black Death is the plague, right? And if you know much about the plague, I was just kind of researching it. It's actually still around today in kind of uh, more third world countries. It, it still um, takes people's lives. But it is a 
terrible, terrible disease. And so it was a pandemic, not an epidemic, a pandemic. So the plague killed about 25 million people, right? 25 million people. And so the plague, there's um, essentially three main strands of the plague. So it could kind of affect you generally. It could get in your bloodstream or it could get your lungs, right? And so what would happen, depending on what you got, you get like, like your lymph nodes would swell up really big and it'd be very, very painful. You'd get these blood clots all over under your skin that would turn black. Your glands would swell up and they would fill with pus to the point that they would explode. Ugh, right? You're, if you got the kind in your lungs, literally, it just, over time, your lungs just dissolve away. Like, that's how it killed you, right? And so it's this terrible disease. And depending on what strand you got, um, it was almost 100% terminal. So two of the strands, if you got them, you were done. You had like almost a 0% chance of survival. Your best chance is 50-50, right? There was no cure for it during that time. And it was highly contagious. And so Zwingli's away, right? He's not in Zurich. And all of a sudden this hits, this happens. What do you think he does? He's the pastor of a church there, a priest of a church there. What do you think he does? He goes back. He thinks about these people that he loves that are there. These people, you know, who he's married, who he's baptized, families who he's done funerals for. And he thinks, I can't let them go through this alone, even though I'm safe, right? Like he's, he's away from it. I can't let them go through this alone. And so he goes back and he starts ministering to people, loving these people that are, are literally dying. You get it and, and almost certainly you're going to die, right? And guess what happens to him? He gets it, right? He gets it and you think, well, he's, he's done, you know? I mean, the chances of survival are, are so slim. And yet, amazingly, God doesn't take his life. Like he actually lives. He actually, eventually, he gets terribly sick but he eventually gets better and he continues to minister to the people. He actually wrote a hymn about it a little bit later. It's called his plague hymn. Very appropriate, right? But he kind of talks about his trust in God, the agony that he went through, but then how God ultimately healed him. And I, I, I was reading that story this week and I was just struck by it. And the question I have, and maybe you have too, is I think, what would cause somebody to do that? You know, like what would cause somebody to leave what was safe and secure and comfortable. He was away, like he, he had literally almost no chance of getting it unless he went back. What would cause him to risk his life and experience brutality, right? This brutal way to die. What would cause somebody to do that? Hold that thought, let me tell you a second story. I'm reading that this week, of course I'm thinking about Christmas, and I read this story about this lady named Karen Watson. So Karen Watson, uh, Zwingli lived in the, in the 1500s. Karen Watson was much more recent. She was in 2004, right? Um, in 2003, Karen Watson, she was in her mid-30s, mid to late 30s, and she was a Christian, and she was praying. She was just kind of spending time with God. And as she would, over a period of time, she started to feel like God was calling her to leave everything that she knew, everything that she experienced, and everything that she had. She lived in Bakersfield, California, right? She felt like God was calling her to leave all of that and go somewhere else as a missionary. And the place that she felt like God was calling her to go was Iraq, right? And so she's praying about it and she becomes convinced that this is what God has for her. And so she, uh, so she quits her job. 
She sells her house, she sells her car, she sells almost everything that she has. By the time she leaves for Iraq, everything that she owns, everything that's to her name, fits in a duffel bag that she brings along with her, right? And she goes to Iraq as a humanitarian aid worker and as a missionary to be a light for Jesus. But Watson wasn't as fortunate as Zwingli. So um, she left in March of uh, 2003. In March of 2004, she'd been there for about a year. Um, she and some of her friends there, uh, co-workers there, were driving along on a road in Iraq and their car was um, ambushed and attacked. And Larry and Jean Elliott, who were in the car with her, David McDonald, who was in the car, and Karen Watson all died in the attack. Watson was 38 years old. And just about a year earlier, so in March of 2003, but right before she left, she wrote a letter and she gave it to her pastors in, Cal in Bakersfield, California, but she gave it to them with strict order not to read it until she died. It's interesting, right? Until she died, she, they, then they were allowed to open this letter and read it. And so when they got news that she passed away, um, they grabbed that letter and they opened it up. And in that letter, um, she talked a lot about her calling from God. She said this, she said, to obey, to obey my calling was my objective. That's what I wanted to do. She said, to suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. And, and she was aware that her death, like she anticipated that her death might cause people back home to think, we shouldn't send any more people to Iraq. It's too dangerous. It's like a death mission to go there, right? And so in her letter, she talked about how important it was, like, don't let my death keep people from coming here. She said how important it was to preserve the work, to keep sending missionaries, to keep raising up pastors to go over there and tell these people about Jesus. And so I'm reading that story this week, and I ask myself the same question. And you know, what would cause somebody to leave, like, she lived in California, you know? It was safe, it was secure, it was comfortable to go to a place that was very uncomfortable for her, that was very unpredictable, and it was so dangerous that she anticipated that it was going to take her very life, right? So I'm thinking about all these, and I think, you know, as powerful and heroic as Zwingli's story is and Watson's story is, I can't help but think that both of them would have recognized how much more heroic what God did for us is, right? Like, you think about what Jesus, what God the Son, let me be clear, what God the Son left 2,000-ish years ago to take on flesh and blood, right? Like, let your mind think about what heaven must be like, you know? The glory he must read. We get little glimpses of this in the book of Revelation, right? Like the angels, the heavenly hosts worshiping him. Like imagine what it must have been like for him. And then all of a sudden, he chooses to take on flesh. As cute as a baby is, beautiful as a baby is, they're helpless, they're weak, they die, right? Like what must it have been like for him to leave the glory of heaven to come down here, and you think, why would he do that, you know? Why would, why would Zwingli do what he did? Why would Watson do what she did? I was thinking about all this this week, I think, I think they all did it for the exact same reasons. You know what it is? Love, right? 
like, why did Zwingli leave what he left? He was safe to go back to the, the plague-infested place. He loved God. He trusted his calling. And he loved those people, right? Why would Watson do what she did? She loved God. She trusted his calling in her life. And she loved these people. Why would Jesus do what he did? He loved and was united with God the Father, and he loved us. Like, let your mind just consider what Jesus came and sacrificed for you. Like, knowing you, like, I know my heart, you know your heart. We know how rotten we can be. We know how many terrible things we've done in our lives. He knows all of it. And he came here because he loves you. And of course, just leaving what was safe and secure and comfortable or leaving the glory of heaven was never the end goal in itself, right? Like as much as we love Christmas, I started out, I love Christmas, I bet you do too. As much as we love Christmas, let me say something that maybe might sound weird to your ears. Christianity actually isn't about Christmas. We love Christmas, we celebrate it. But Christianity actually isn't really about Christmas. Christmas finds its significance in Easter, right? Like Christmas isn't the end goal. God becoming flesh isn't the end goal. God became flesh to sacrifice that flesh for you and for me, right? Like that's the goal. The goal isn't just come. Watson didn't go to Iraq and she gets there and she goes, mission complete. I made it. I sold everything. I'm here. I'm done. No, she went to Iraq because she had a mission she loved those people and she wanted to give them Jesus, right? Jesus didn't come to earth 2,000 years ago as a, a little baby. God the Son didn't come to earth as a little baby in Jesus and go, mission complete. He came to give his life, right? Let me tell you one more story that I, I think it, I want to share because I think it helps us see why Christmas is such a big deal. And so it's about two people. It's about a guy named, it, it's hard to say his name, Gareth Griffiths. I feel like I have a lisp every time I say it. Gareth Griffiths and uh, another guy named Michael Costello. And so Gareth Griffiths was a 27-year-old guy. He uh, was from the UK, actually. He was from South Wales. And he came over on vacation in Florida. Uh, he was on a vacation. And while he was here, he said, uh, I want to go skydiving. I've never been skydiving before. I want to try skydiving, right? And so he goes to the skydiving place, and he meets this guy, uh, Michael Costello. Michael Costello is the instructor there. And so he goes through, Griffiths goes through all of his training and everything to do the jump, and he's going to do a tandem jump, which is this, right? And so uh, the, the novice, the student, would be below, and the instructor would be up top, right? And so the student could see everything, you know, and the instructor kind of navigates how they move through the air, right? And so the student is connected, or like literally strapped to the front of the instructor, and so he goes through all of the training. Um, they get to the point where they're ready to do it. So they go up into the plane. They get to the desired altitude. And um, as they're there, you know, at the right height, you have the, the stress, the nervousness of like, I got to have the courage to jump out of an airplane, you know. And so they do, they finally do, they jump out of the airplane. And uh, at first, it is an exhilarating experience, right? Like an amazing experience. And they're falling and it's wonderful until something terrible happens. This is a true story, by the way. As they're falling, they get to the point where um, they need to pull their parachute, right? They need to pull the ripcord. And so the instructor pulls the ripcord and it fails, which is not a, a terribly big deal because they always have a backup chute, 
as well, right? And so he pulls the first one. It doesn't work. He doesn't panic. He pulls the second chute. It also fails. And they have no more chute, right? And so they're falling and falling and falling to the earth. And after the chutes both fail, they start to get in this violent uh, spin. And so the instructor, uh, Costello, is, is, like I say, he's experienced. He knows what he's doing. He somehow um, corrects the spin, but the earth is fast approaching. And as they're falling, it looked just like that. It's the instructor on the top, and it's the, the student on the bottom. And so they're falling and falling, and, uh, of course, the instructor realized that they were going to die. They had no other help with this, right? And so he makes a very interesting decision. He does something that I guess you never do um, when you're tandem um, parachuting. The instructor who's on top, he wraps his arms and his legs around Griffiths as they're falling. And when that happens, apparently it flips you over, right? And so he does that. They're just before they hit the ground. He grabs them. They flip over. And um, the instructor acted, chose to act like a cushion to potentially give Griffiths a chance of surviving the fall. Like he sacrificed his own life so that, um, so that Griffiths could live. And amazingly, Griffiths lived. Actually, he had some, some back uh, issues. He had to have a back surgery, but, um, but lived and did well. All because of the sacrifice that Michael Costello made. And I read that story this week, and I think, boy, isn't that so much what Jesus did for us? Like Christmas is such a big deal because it made it possible for God to do what he ultimately wanted to do for us, to wrap his arms around us in Jesus and take the blow for us so that we could live if we want to live. Like this is the reason Jesus came this is the reason Jesus died on the cross. It's like him wrapping his arms around us to take the blow so that we could live. And so this Christmas, you know, I know we're all going to walk out of here. This is our last service. We got dinner tonight. You guys probably do too. We're going to walk out of here and we're going to have a busy next 24 hours-ish, right? You're going to have stuff that you're doing. And you're going to celebrate. And I challenge you, as you celebrate this Christmas, don't forget to celebrate the love that the Father has for us as it was fleshed out when Jesus became flesh and blood. Like as we share wonderful meals together with family and friends, remember the bread of life. That's what Jesus is called in the New Testament. Remember the bread of life whose body was broken for us. As we give thoughtful and meaningful gifts to each other, remember the gift that Jesus gave to us, which was himself, right? As you, as you walk through stores or as you drive home tonight and you hear Christmas songs, like allow yourself, don't, don't just sing along. Like think about the words. You can just sing along with the ones about Santa. That's fine. But many, man, many of these Christmas songs, I, I read something about uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Like that, the theology in that song about Jesus is so rich. It's so beautiful and it's so well said. Like think about the words to these songs. I'll end with this. Last, um, last weekend, we had a really cool weekend. We did baptisms. We had 10 people. We had a big trough of water up here. And we had 10 people who um, said yes to Jesus. And so whatever it is in their life that they were kind of pursuing, they, they, um, they heard the good news about Jesus. And they said, I want to live for him. 
I want to follow him. I want him to lead my life. And so all 10 of them last weekend were baptized. And, and, I, and I just want to end by asking you, like I realize we're all at different points in, in our walk, but I want to end by asking you the question, um, like how about you? <laughs> you know, like who's leading your life? Sometimes we can think, I got to get my life all cleaned up before God's going to accept me. You know, I got I to take care of this or, um, you know, I got to make restitution for this. And it's not true, you know. He's not going to reject us, but he loves us, right? That's what Christmas is all about. God loved you so much and me so much that he became flesh and blood ultimately to give his life for you and for me. And so I just want to challenge you this Christmas, wherever you're at, is Jesus leading your life? Like, do you get the sacrifice? Have you said yes to him? He will change you. He will transform you from the inside out. And through him, we can experience a peace and a purpose and a hope and a joy and a love that nothing else in this life can compete with.